Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. Sakuya here. And before things begin, I just want to let you know that what you are hearing right now, this thing is an introduction because what you are going to hear is a part two to last week's episode because this whole thing was a massive like two and a half hour long thing that we did on the Chicago World Fair because the total thing is just a massive fascinating story it's so good so if you haven't heard last week's episode please go back and listen to it if you have then I hope you enjoyed today's episode either way I do have to give my little thing in the beginning that says remember to get this month's audiobook buy our coffee support us on patreon etc etc but without further ado I'm not going to hold you back from the episode it's going to jump right into the thick of it so uh yeah here you go So foreign buildings would serve as the headquarters of foreign commissioners, and these would showcase natural resources, historical artifacts, artworks, cultural objects, everything. 46 countries and pavilions, or 46 countries had pavilions at the expo, and most of them would form a kind of campus of foreign buildings that would be located on the northeast side of the fairgrounds, like just the central location where they could all be. And this was between the North Pond and Lake Michigan. The one glaring exception to this was the Japanese exhibit. It was the only building that was allowed to be built on the wooded island, which was this little island that was specifically made so as Olmsted's crowning jewel of the landscape. Only Burnham could dissuade him by pointing out that the Japanese as a country had been very isolationist in the past. Like he didn't want so to provide context. The Olmsted did not want anyone soiling like his big, beautiful island. But Burnham basically managed to convince him that the Japanese, which had only recently stopped being isolated, that them being on this location was like this super artistic, deep representation of Japan as a whole. You know that feeling like when someone does a stu- like does stuff with a painting or a literary work and they're reading a lot of stuff into it? for the meaning behind the work and yeah, all basically. the symbolism and everything. They were they were, they were literally doing that with landscape. That makes sense. So they had Japan take place there because Japan had been an isolationist nation and this was very new how it was it was just appearing on the world stage. It was still cautious, mind you, and it was very separate and distinct from the others. So they built their own private enclosure where they're like kind of isolated. And but are they brand, were still like the center because pu- they were in the really beautiful. Because it's the brand jewel. new country to that enter the really scene. That is really cool. What if they didn't do that and they didn't feel welcome and no one would have anime today? So thank you, Olmsted and Burnham. No, that, that, that happened for completely different reasons. We don't need to go World into it. Anyway, Norway, <laughs> they built the Viking a replica of the Gokstad ship. Yes. Norway literally built a giant replica of a Viking ship called the Gokstad ship, which is located in the Viking Museum that is in Oslo to this day. We didn't get to see that one. No, we, we stopped briefly in Oslo, but we did not get to really do much else. So they then sailed this ship across the Atlantic in order to take part in the exhibit. Wait, they actually built the ship? 
yeah, in they, Norway. The, yeah. And sailed it to they the sailed US. It. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I love Norwegians. Have I ever mentioned that? There's so it's just this whole thing is just p- countries doing crazy things because we're going to show off how awesome we are. That is pretty awesome. I love that. Yeah, the German one focused pretty heavily on arms and ammunition and weapons, which course very german at the time you got to remember it's the 1890s only like 15 years earlier had germany formed as an actual empire and a state and that is through blood and iron like the military is really big in the german mind at this point so you had uh the weapons manufacturing firm krupp which krupp then went and formed a pavilion based around artillery which apparently cost them a million dollars to actually stage that's a million dollars in 1890. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so they set this thing up, which included a coastal gun, which was a 42-centimeter gun in bore. Like, that's a huge, huge gun. With a, It had a length of, like, 33 caliber. It was uh, 45.93 feet, or 14 meters. A breech-loaded gun, which weighed 120 tons... Which or well, 120 long tons, which is 122.4 metric tons. And according to the company's marketing, it carried a charge projectile that weighed around 2,200 to 2,500 pounds, driven by 900 pounds of brown powder, which claimed to be able to penetrate at 2,200 yards a wrought iron plate that was three feet thick if placed at right angles. This was the big boy gun. It was nicknamed the Thunderer, which it I was think nicknamed is the Thunderer. I think that is just the best name for anything that could do that. Yeah, which the gun, mind you, this is the 1890s. The gun was advertised to have a range of 15 miles. 15 miles. Yeah, which in could the 1890s being, is huge. No, could you imagine being 15 miles away and you get hit by not a sniper rifle, but the Thunderer? Yeah, that's that's a thing now. Like if you're talking artillery pieces, because it's like that can um, happen. Artillery is still regarded as, like, the king of the battlefield. Listen, I did not know what artillery was until, like, we played, um... Civilization. Enlisted. (laughs) Oh, Enlisted. Yes. Very good game. Very good game. But, yeah, no, artillery is still regarded as, like, the king of the battlefield. It, It does the most damage to an area. And at this point in history... There is a bit of an arms race that is going on between, uh, and obviously Germany was winning. Well, in this case, for reg- like for manufacturing of weapons, yes, and they were trying to build up a like the naval one, but the British Navy was vastly superior. Like there was this whole massive arms race, which is one of the driving factors that led to World War One. But that's a whole other point in the first place. Um, this was a big deal at the time. There were U.S. Army officials who stated that the Krupp's guns were the biggest peacemakers in the world because the guns were so terrible, like the idea of the Gatling gun, that there is no way that anyone would want to declare war and do anything because they could just immediately be obliterated. They're not going to risk it. Did they risk it? World War One and World War Two happened, Gabby, and millions of people died. Yeah, yeah they risked it. They risked a lot. In fact, there's this little side bit note, and it's a very famous quote. The inventor of the Gatling gun uh, specifically made the Gatling gun not to sell because he wanted to be rich. He invented it 
because he wanted it to be such a terrible thing that war would basically stop because governments would so, not be willing to do it. You're telling me if I created a horrible enough weapon. Wait, no, they just make like some rule that's like, that's a war crime to use it. And then they'll fight anyway. Yeah. Uh, I thought I could make world peace. No, welcome to humanity. We will always find ways to screw each other over. Welcome to history for that matter. That's just what happens. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, this was obviously not the case. The gun was pretty much a precursor to the uh, Dick Berta howitzers that you would see in World War I. And so early into the design of the fair, uh, Burnham had encountered a little bit of a problem with entertainment. You see, seeing that the midway point had been designed and flourished with businesses that were at the 1889 Paris Expo, Burnham went and reached out to the young man who had ran the midway exhibit or the midway area for the French, which, which this is the craziest part of all these crazy details about inventions and all this other stuff. And this is my favorite part. It was an 18 year old kid by the name of Saul Bloom. Now I say kid because obviously I'm a 27 year old man now this time. And in fact, an 18 year old is running this massive expo. Like part of this expo is ridiculous to me. But it was an 18-year-old kid, basically, and he ran this for the French. Now, his name is his name is Saul Bloom, and he is one of those figures in history who just really seemed to be in the right place at the right time on multiple occasions. Because in France, he was smart enough that he had bought the rights to the Midway Plaisance, which was the uh, that was the center of entertainment at the Paris Expo and the place where the Eiffel Tower was displayed for the first time. He had moved to San Francisco since then and was then approached by Burnham in order to be in charge of the Midway at the Chicago Expo. So he thought at the time that he was simply being asked to run a portion of the Midway for the Chicago Fair. But when he realized that he was interviewing for the job of literally managing and coordinating all of the entertainment in the most chaotic and alcohol-fueled part of the fair... Bloom thought that this whole thing was a joke and that he had no actual way that he was going to get the job. Like, it wasn't going to happen. It's literally the definition of someone going and seeing your application that you have on Indeed.com. And it's for, like, NASA has just reached out to you with your three years of fry cook experience. And you're like, why is a recruiter reaching out to me? But it's like one of those automated emails that is, like, reaching out to people. But also recruiters reach out. Uh, for a job you're not qualified for. Anywhere. Oh, they do all the time because they're just desperately trying to do something because it's literally their job to do so. But you know exactly what I mean. Oh, I know, I know. So Bloom thought he had no chance of getting this job, but he, he went along with the interview anyway to just see what would happen. And towards the end of the interview, Burnham asked him how much would he need to be paid in order to leave San Francisco? 
you know, just dropping his business and everything that he had there and moved to Chicago at once. So Bloom was going to be like, dude, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do this. It's, it doesn't matter. I, I, I can't. But Burnham, before he could say anything, interrupted him and told him, listen, come back tomorrow. Sit down. Tell me a number. We will not discuss anything else until you give me a number for how much you want to be paid. And we will either accept it or deny it at that time. That's it. Just literally give me a number for a salary request, which is a really, that's a scary thing to be asked now when they, when they do that at companies. Year old, though. He isn't the amount 18. of power this kid had. Actually, I'm pretty sure he was 18 when he did it at the, the, the French Expo earlier. I'm pretty sure that's when he was 18. So by this time, he's like 22. But still, he's a 22-year-old kid, if that's the case. That it, yeah. <laughs> Which is... I mean, he's the perfect age to plan something that's like the alcohol fuel. Oh, yeah. This is going to be day. the supreme frat like, party. I would definitely go up to the president of whatever Greek life is the hottest <laughs> house on campus and be like, hey, can you throw this massive rager for the president or whatever? Like, yeah. I mean, maybe not the president, but you know what I mean. Oh, funny that you should mention that. With president. Have you seen Greek life, though? Their rules are so strict. They do a great job. Yeah. It's funny, though, that you mentioned the whole thing with president because he thought as he left the office that the the whole thing was going to be ridiculous. No, this is not going to work. So he tried to think of the most ridiculous salary that he could come up with. It's just like a standard worker of what he would be paid. You know, it's like Dr. Evil moment of going one million dollars. But in his case, he comes back. That next morning, and before he can even start talking, Burnham says, you are to give me a nothing. Uh, You are to give me a number, Mr. Bloom. That and nothing more. So he pauses, thinks about it for a second, and then he replied with what he thought at the time was a ridiculously high salary. He demanded to be paid the same salary as the President of the United States. Which actually is not a lot because today the president makes $400,000, I think, a year. Maybe more. I hope they adjust for inflation, but it's not that much money. In comparison to like the average worker or just like an engineer or a standard organizer, like someone who's not getting royalties and a percentage of a fee, like for a fair or an event, that's a really high salary that he still was just asking for. I don't know. I feel like $400,000... This is unrelated, but but I just want to say, I feel like the president of the United States is horribly underpaid because the amount of stress, (laughs) he will have to pay me so much more. Well, you say that, but you also have to understand that buying power was significantly stronger at that time. That is true. Even if you adjust for inflation and you say like, oh, a dollar back then would be worth like, like $34 today. Yes. Okay. But also... A dollar back then would have bought you something that would have cost $60 today. So because even though adjusting for an inflation, it was worth less, or even though for adjusting for inflation, it was less money, it was worth more at the time for the goods that you'd be able to buy. So Burnham apparently just sits there across from him, silent for a few moments, contemplating, and then looks at him and goes, so how quickly can you be in Chicago? He accepted it. He just accepted it. Just I like, mean, they were make they were probably going to make so much money from this fair. They had an unlimited budget, right? No, yeah, amazing. Not as big of a budget as you'd think. I thought when I was going through the notes on this that there was going to be a significantly bigger fee than what they actually had to pay in comparison a to what billion they did. Billion dollars. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get oh, into darn it. it. No. It's, if you adjust for inflation, it's only like $50 million. That's it? Yeah, if you adjust for inflation, but yeah. It's... It's insane because I would have anticipated something like like you see the 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 the, the stuff put on today and you see the the the, like the World Cup and the Olympics and all the different stuff that is put on and it costs literally billions to put on. Everybody shush. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. This was the biggest event that the world had ever seen, and it was made dirt cheap in comparison to what you'd expect it to be. So the crazy thing about all this is that Bloom was actually really competent. He was super creative. He was organized. He was great with people. And he just he was just good. He was good at his job. And so aside from its largest attraction, the Midway was known for being the most fun part of the fair for the average person. The exhibits on display included stuff like a German village that was completely made as a replica with a beer garden and beer wenches. Wait, actually, wait, can I say wenches? You know what I'm talking about. The image that you see of you've ever seen the whole garden beer and you've seen like the Frau, like the girl. So that like is the maiden, yeah. The, the maid that is, has like the multicolor or like the two-tone dress and she's holding like all the beer in her hand and like that. It just complete recreation of that. Think shield maiden, but then take off the armor and... Give her booze. The shield and give her a beer. Lots of beer. Because I actually don't know if we can say wenches but it's historical right? it's historical it's what they would have called it associated i find it hilarious yeah now of course i'm not trying to get canceled here or anything but it's 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 cool it's in my opinion i love that look now there were people from lapland and inuits from alaska who were wearing seal skin blouses you had dahomey peoples you had the people of papua new guinea who at the time were rumored to be cannibals that were being shown in traditional clothing as savages now mind you all the stuff that i'm talking about and showing here this is the 1890s. Be aware that in many places, they, just they were not everyone. culturally sensitive. Yeah, they just saw everyone that was not as advanced, I guess, technologically. Everything was put on display. Emphasis yeah. on put on display. So That's not great. Remember that whole thing about uh, the, like, Buffalo Bill and all that? Yeah. Like, they did whole things of recreating battles against Native Americans. Like that—that that was one of the big things that they were being they, they were putting on. One thing we should remember here is we shouldn't judge the past through the more morality lens of today. Yeah, otherwise you're just going to be have miserable forever. <laughs> you really it, will. It happens, so we just have to talk about it. Truck on. In addition to that, more positive light in here. Uh, the first ever public display of belly dancing that many Americans ever saw occurred here. 
Wait, really? Yeah, because most people are not going to see anything like that. Obviously, belly dancing would have been done in some places before, maybe with a bit more racy stuff. But this was like, for most people, this is the first time they've ever witnessed belly dancing or anything like it. Um, they had a elevated train that went and circled around the entire fairgrounds. The first of its kind. Right. The expo was full of firsts. And this is what we're really going to get into. There were so many firsts that you really could say this was the event that ushered in the 20th century. It was the first time that anyone had ever seen a moving walkway. Like when you're at the airport and that walkway is helping you to move faster. That must have been like joyous seeing a walking, uh, moving walkway for the first time. Literally. (laughs) Imagine a three-year-old just like witnessing that, but it's adults all going crazy. Oh, that's actually really cool. Yeah. So they have the uh, the first ever moving walkway uh, that would move people alongside the lake. So you could do the take the walkways you're going around around the lake in all of its beautiful scenery. You had uh, the first iteration of the zipper. So the zipper was first introduced here. How did people's <laughs> pants get held up if they didn't have zippers? It would get pinned or buttoned. The zipper wasn't a thing yet. I mean, Gabby, what? Okay, that is really cool. Velcro would not be made until the... Okay, actually, did you know, unless it's made by the brand it? Velcro, it's actually just called Hook and Loop? Yeah, I understand that. I, I, do, I am aware so of that. So Velcro when was, it made? was a... No, no. Can I so just you say go, my Do your back? thing. Do your thing. Velcro was actually... They, they were about to lose their... Uh, what is that thing? Patent. Their patent. And in order to keep their patent... They had to make people stop calling everything that was Velcro-like Velcro. So they did this entire campaign that was like, hey, this is hook and loop. Call it hook and loop or else we can't be Velcro anymore and we are Velcro. And I think that's so funny. They like did this whole song. It was like massive ad campaign. I think it worked out because Velcro is still Velcro. But I found that on TikTok and I don't remember who it was. So if you listen to this, just message me. (laughs) <laughs> but that was not my information. I saw it on TikTok. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is that is genuinely hilarious, right? Um, what, what else? So you had the zipper. You had moving walkways. You had the first iteration of the fully electric kitchen. Not not like the fully electric kitchen, which included an electric dishwasher. They didn't have electric dishwasher. No there. electric dishwashers. This is like a really big deal that this has happened. You had the early versions of fluorescent lamps that were on exhibit, as well as a device that was the first thing or that could really make printing books in Braille possible. Okay, that is really cool. Yeah. And so its inventor, Frank Haven Hall, was personally visited and thanked by none other than Helen Keller. So many people were in attendance with this. No, could you imagine not being able to see and not being able to read because you couldn't see and now all of a sudden you can actually print books in the language you can read? Yep. That is really cool. I this like stuff that. is crazy. They, um, you had the Baha'i faith, which was first publicly spoken of and formed there. You had the magician, Harry Houdini, Who and his brother. Who was a real person, apparently. Wait, you didn't know that Houdini was a real person? Thought he was one of those mythological, just like, you know, they made just him up. Just one of the folklores. Just, yeah. Yeah. No, he was a real person. And apparently he had a brother named Theodore. Yes. And they performed uh, the magic act at the Midway. The United States Mint also issued its very first commemorative coins here. Uh, the Colombian Exposition Half Dollar and the Quarter Dollar. The U.S. Postal Service also produced its first ever picture postcards and commemorative stamp set just next door to the Mint's coin exhibit, right? The Pledge of Allegiance was first performed by a mass of school children that were then lined up in military fashion. 
We have this World's Fair to thank for that thing that embarrassed me so badly in American high schools because I was not American. <laughs> and everyone was like standing, they were ready to go, and I'm like, well, Gabby, you were American. You just weren't raised American. What are we doing? <laughs> no, I'm in class, and they're all standing hand over heart, <laughs> facing the flag. I'm like, what is going And then they all know what to say, and I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> you can imagine my shock. So yeah. thank you, World's Fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, really, that became even bigger because of the Cold War. That's, that's, that's where that became standardized as a thing that you had to do. Because... Disloyalty. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole thing in there. We, there's so many different things we could do on the on the Cold War. But the dramatic merchandising that you saw in the 1893 World Columbian Exposition just included so many crazy little things that were... Um, the best way that you could describe this is making a blank out of blank. Like, Im- imagine a game of cards against humanity where you have the two options and you just stick the most r- two random blank cards plus you have. blank equals blank. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So this involved, a lot of these were usually making different objects or things out of food. Like, as an example, uh, there was a copy of the Liberty Bell that was made out of citrus fruit. They had a knight on horseback that was made out of prunes. A landscape painting, like a full painting that was made out of cereals and grasses. And a Venus de Milo statue. You know the exact one that I'm talking about. The big statue of the uh, goddess of love, Venus. So they had a, uh, a big statue of her made out of chocolate. How did they keep all of this fresh enough? Because I'm assuming this went on for six months. Well, you know. Did they have a refrigerated room? I'm did they cover it? I'm pretty sure they did. You also have to remember that this is Chicago. It is pretty in cold May. there. Yeah, but at the time in but May, it it's still cold. But it would go on for six months, so it's mm-hmm. May through summer. I'm guessing that from that, they would move it and cool it. Also, you you remember, ice sculptures, like the big blocks of ice, they last a long time in, like, but summer heat. But this is heat. citrus. So they had to have a refrigerated room. Yeah, you also probably have to replace different pieces. Also, well, an ice sculpture isn't lasting six months. Let's be honest here. Yeah. I I will give you another example. This, is, this shows something that they did do, right? There was this big announcement that they were going to have an entire map of the World Fair. Uh, not not of the World Fair, of America. An entire map of America made entirely out of pickled vegetables. So there was this huge thing. And they, they, I, I, have a, uh, I have a newspaper quote right here from it. <clears throat> per the syndicated news story, a unique exhibit from Pennsylvania will be a map of the United States. 18 by 24 feet. So again... Mind you, this thing is three times my height long and 24 or and four times my height tall or reversed. Either way, it's it would be three times tall because it's a big landscape version of it, which will be entirely made out of pickles preserved by the company that makes the exhibit. No, pickles, vegetables and fruits. So like, yes. Yeah. So different pickled things is what it is. The state lines will be accurately shown, and the lakes and rivers will be represented by vinegar. The larger cities will be indicated by spices, and the whole will be covered by a single piece of plate glass, which is specifically made for this purpose. The expense of this interesting exhibit of pickling and the preservation industry will be approximately $15,000. $15,000 on pickles. So a company spent, which... But it wouldn't even last that long. I mean, they're pickles, so they would last a little bit longer. yeah, but it won't last forever. I'd want to make something that can last forever. True. The whole point of this was to show off 
and for a limited time frame. Yeah, in fact, can you do me a favor? I want you right now to go onto your phone and do 1893 inflation and just see what equals what. So can you do $15,000 in 1893 and what that equals today? I'm genuinely curious about that because that's a stupid amount of money to spend here at the time on something. Like the advances that they had for food technology and all this stuff was super impressive. And it just, like they wanted to go all out because everything was pretty much exploding. This was a big deal for a lot of people. Oh, did you get it pulled up? Okay, so that is $15,000 in 1893 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $496,686. So... In 1893, this company spent the equivalent of half a million dollars on a map made of pickles. So today's prices are 33.11 times higher than average prices. Wow, that's a lot. Remember what I told you. So even if you got paid significantly less per inflation, you would actually have more purchasing power. Like 33 times the purchasing power. Yep. I was born in the wrong century. (laughs) But like that's, that's just... It really is insane. It really is insane. But the other things that was going on is that this was a place where they um, they were getting a lot of firsts for foods. Like people were trying things for the first time, right? You had cream of wheat being first introduced here. You had Vienna sausages. So Vienna sausages were starting to sell their little uh, frankfurters and sausages near one of the entrances. And they what this would pretty much be for what for many people would consider the first hot dog ever. The Vienna sausage. Yeah, like the, the Vienna sausage. Because they're selling like the, the Frankfurters here. And if you have the buns, you had anything else and like the breads that you would be eating it with, you got the first ever hot dogs. Okay, that's actually really cool. Yep. So you got the hot dogs. You had um, Cracker Jacks being tasted for the first What's time. What's a Cracker Jack? Oh, right. So because you're, you're not from here, so you wouldn't know. Um, imagine caramel popcorn. Like, like remember the for caramel popcorn and peanuts. That, you mix. made it worse. You did not make it better. <laughs> it's it was it's actually really good. Okay. It's really good. Um, so you have Cracker Jacks being served there. Um, you have Quaker Oats being introduced. Uh, Kellogg's shredded wheat was eaten. Also, maybe perhaps laughed at because this is during the whole time where you have Kellogg cereal and the debate between the healthy foods and the sugar filled cereals and all that. There's it's a whole other thing behind that. It really depends on one's taste. You also had Mitten Hershey. Milton. Wait, what did I say? Mitten. Mitten? I don't know why I said Mitten. Milton. So you had Hershey's. You had Hershey's first introduced mixed chocolate, which, I mean, he already had existing chocolate and caramel products and stuff here, but this was like the first ever, you mix it with stuff and it becomes chocolate. So he mixed chocolate with his caramel. I mean, and among everything else, like this was, this was the chocolate mix. You know That's how you, really cool. You know how you have the Hershey's chocolate sauce and then you have like the um, uh, like the powders and the other stuff? Yep. This is the introduction of that. It's like Nesquik, what we Sorry, use for I joy. read ahead and they said that Aunt Jemima was widely popularized at this expo. Yes. And it had a woman named Nancy Green. Yes. Act as the first iteration of Aunt Jemima on stage, which is crazy to me because I did not know that Aunt Jemima was not an actual person. So the company just got, they just hired women who looked like Aunt Jemima to play Aunt Jemima. Oh, because the entire thing was a marketing thing for here. Like, th- th- really. The but in- they got her to tell stories and anecdotes of growing up a slave and making pancakes for her slave masters, which, d- that I mean, 
They oh, just put on a show. They basically put on a show. Now, mind you. For marketing. Now, mind you. It makes sense and it's smart. If I recall correctly, the lady actually was. She was originally so a slave. Hired, okay, so that's less bad, I guess. Because if they just got like a random person. Mm-mm. But I mean, it's 1893. So obviously most. I think there's a, a detail here, like a bonus fact at the end that specifically covers that. But, and, and this is one of the crazy things. You know how that was a really big deal? We're not going to get into politics. We're not going to get into anything like that. But you know how this, literally this past year, it's no longer Aunt Jemima, like, syrup. Like, that's not a thing. I or, like, the pancake that. mix. I actually did not know that. So they removed it because of being racially insensitive uh, whatnot. So the family, the descendants of her. Nancy Green? Yes, are pissed. Because, because it takes their picture off of because it. Because it removes it was, their family legacy. That's like their their call to fame, the thing that made them proud and stand up like that. They have a lasting legacy. They were pissed. But, of course, the wider public, uh, I say the wider public, um, again, we're not going to get into extensively with politics or anything else like that. But a number of vocal people specifically wanted it gone. I feel really bad for so the family. I. But I also understand why they would essentially want it gone. So I, it's just a double-edged. It's a double-edged. No matter which way you cut, someone is going to be, be mad. be hurt or upset about it. And I get that because it's one of those subjects where there aren't really many winners. Yeah. But it's one of those things that was really cool that I, I personally think it was really cool what would happen there and, like, what it is they did. The, the, you had Juicy Fruit Gum, which was first tasted and chewed in Midway. And thanks to George Washington Carver, you had peanut uh, peanut butter making its appearance here, which, Gabby, like, imagine literally being one of the first people to make peanut butter. Or not make peanut butter, eat to peanut taste butter. It, that is, that That's is a big deal. Also, George Washington Carver was a very cool person. Yeah. We should have a podcast on him. Oh, my God. Like, I am, God, I am so jelly. Don't look at me like that, Okay. <laughs> Peanut butter and jelly. Would you say you're peanut butter and jelly? I'm nutty. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I'd say I'm just crazy enough. Oh, oh, other big one, because this is a really cool uh, anecdote. So Pabst Blue Ribbon. You know how you have that beer? Yeah. Right? Okay. So the Pabst Brewery won a prize here. They won first a blue ribbon. Yeah, they won first prize. They were so proud of this accomplishment that they changed the name of their beer to literally Pabst Blue Ribbon. That's really cool. So the the beer that you have today, if you've ever seen it on the shelves, Pabst Blue Ribbon, that whole thing comes from the fact that they won a competition in 1893. I think it's really cool that they still exist since they didn't like they've been around since I mean yeah, breweries a lot of breweries are pretty old and it's like the ones in America are young compared to a lot of the ones in Europe like there are some really old ones um but th- th- a lot of the stuff is it really is crazy it's amazing that they all got to experience all of this for the first time because I know in welfares today it's nothing as revolutionary because obviously as you know something's invented it hits the internet oh this person in Saudi Arabia did this really cool thing and built this really cool skyscraper. And now we all know about it. So it's not like, oh, we're showing up here with no news of what these people are capable of. Like, we're never going to experience anything like that 1893 World Spread. I'm kind of jealous because, like, they had all of these foods. It's not just mass produced, a huge marketing campaign, and it hits the shelves. It's like, oh, we have this thing no one's ever heard of or tasted, and only these people in this small area. Grand reveals can't really happen. You're right. It's it's so, I mean, like, it's great that we have all of this knowledge available to us, but we'll never be surprised. Well, speaking of surprises. 
there's a wonderful thing in here uh, like this. This is something that our podcast editor, James, discovered, and it is it's the greatest achievement in human history that was developed here at this fair. I'm not going to look. Just tell me what it is. <laughs> you had the introduction of the brownie. Oh, that is pretty good. I, okay, can I just say this? This is a little side <laughs> note here as a kid for anyone. This is my own little personal thing. You got cake, brownies, cookies, any other kind of dessert or sweet. For me, brownies were the that was the supreme sweet. It's like whenever I had a birthday growing up, like whenever the uh, whenever you'd go into class on your birthday, and sometimes your parents would bring would give you treats to share with the rest of your class, like your homeroom class or whatever. Yours was the brownie. I I had brownies. Okay, you want to hear my first ever time tasting a brownie? So I was in the tenth grade. I had uh-huh. just moved to the U.S. It was the year twenty eleven. Like the fall, 2011. So it had to be like August or September because I only went to that school for two days. I was in this honors class. So it was like an honors writing class. And the teacher, because I got like a really high grade, brought in brownies as a reward for her top student. And it was me. And it was the best brownie I have ever tasted to this day because I don't love brownies when they're like squishy. This one was like it had um a tough, crusty Almost outer like shell. Almost like cake that you bite into it and rather than dough. I was mind blown that America had brownies. <laughs> <laughs> I never had one before. I was like 15. It's beautiful. That's a beautiful experience. For imagine all these people in so spare got, got to I experience got my, that for the first time. Yeah, I got my brownie experience. Hey, that's really cool. That is really cool. <laughs> so on October 9th, 1893, the day designated as Chicago Day, the fair set a record for outdoor attendance where it drew 751,000 people. In addition to this massive, huge, grandeur of the event, there was all these inspirations that you could just see all across it. There were there were visitors that were like uh, Clara Barton, who was the founder of the American Red Cross. You had Lizzie Borden, who was an axe murderer. A lot of people were there. <laughs> The axe murderer was there. The axe murderer. There was a lot of different people that were in attendance. There was so many different people. H.H. Holmes, which in the previous podcast episode that I did, like the one you're not, you don't want to really listen to a lot of the ones involving serial killers. But the previous podcast episode before this was H.H. Holmes, who specifically would prey on people in Chicago that would be attending the fair because Are all these episodes just like going to start rolling into one into the other? What I love about history is how everything is connected to one another. That's literally my favorite thing. It's why I like world history and not necessarily just, oh, I'm a Roman historian. Oh, I'm just covering this specific economic thing or whatever. I love world history because every single event is connected to another event or thing or person or place. And you get to see how it all kind of ties together and leads into one thing after the next. And I love that. That's my favorite thing in history. I love connections. So... Th- this there's so many different things that are are, are here. Andrew Carnegie. Uh, Andrew Carnegie was there. Uh, you had unsinkable Molly Brown, who was there 20 years before she would survive the sinking of the Titanic. That is amazing. You had President Grover Cleveland, who was there, who he opened the fair by hitting a massive golden uh, telegraph switch, which turned on every single light at the fair and partially blinded some people with how suddenly bright it got. Like, you got to think, this is the brightest that anyone has ever seen anything, perhaps unless staring directly at the sun in midday for a lot of them. It is that insanely bright. Uh, Wyatt Earp was there and would survey the scenes. Wyatt Earp is, um, was a, a really big 
that's like a, a like a big Western figure, like one of the famous gunslingers. Um, you had Henry Ford, who was in attendance and was playing really close attention to the the exhibits in like the mechanized, like the transportation hall. You had uh, Infantata Eulalia. Infanta Eulalia. 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 That was the only surviving daughter of the uh, the King of Spain who spent weeks traveling within the complex. You had uh, William McKinley, who was governor of Ohio, and he aimed to be in attendance and had his sights set on becoming the next president. Famed naturalist and author and father of national parks was just amazed by all the stuff that he saw here. Can you guess who it is? The father of national parks? No, who? Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was there, along with Franklin Roosevelt. Both attended the fair, but separately. You had Mark Twain there doing Mark Twain stuff. You had Wilbur and Orville Wright who were there getting the knowledge and inspiration from all the different mechanized things that they saw to create planes years later. Like, this this was an era of wonder. They didn't even have so everybody who got there had to take a boat. Or train. Well, yeah, but if they're coming from another country. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. That's crazy. They had to sail all the way across to it. Hell, if it was the Norwegians, they came in a literal Viking boat. boat. <laughs> they did that. This is, this is actually This really is actually cool. really cool. There's a lot of stuff in here. Um, real cool detail. You know how this was called the White City? Yes. So it's theorized that from this, because the writer L. Frank, or, uh, L. Frank Baum was in attendance, he is the guy that created the Wizard of Oz. And it's theorized from here, from he was so inspired by this fair, that the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz is specifically inspired by his experiences with the White City in Chicago. That's, I mean, it literally glowed. It was the most brilliant experience anyone had ever seen who had been living up until that point. So that, that would literally inspire fantasy. Yeah. It's just that Honestly, insane. Honestly, it's amazing. And now, while this was so glorious and awe-inspiring, Burnham was not satisfied. wasn't enough. He wanted to find the one attraction, the one big thing that would make it so that the Chicago World Fair was better than anything that the stupid French could have done. He was going to make something better. That was his goal. Something that would eclipse the Eiffel Tower. He wanted that so badly. Like, I mean, he probably, I'm not even kidding about this. He probably would have assaulted someone, like just gone to the street and just started randomly hitting like just old women. Just, just to, if that would guarantee him a bigger thing, he would do it. That's all that he wanted. So he was ready to go to pretty extreme lengths, but he finally managed to get his wish when he met a guy that was by the name of George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., which is a little bit of a long name. It's a good name, but they could have stopped at George Washington. No, they couldn't. They couldn't. They needed that last part. They really did. Okay. Yeah. No, they they absolutely did because for a very specific reason. A Washington wheel doesn't sound right. Yeah, I don't see you're starting to get it. This guy (laughs) had an idea, something that was uh, turning around in his head for a little while. Yeah, I know. Okay, I know that was bad. That was really bad. I know it was was bad. All right. Yeah, boo. (laughs) Okay, the gist of it, the gist of it is that this guy, Ferris, he was a bridge builder from Pittsburgh who was a master at working with structural steel, right? So he had a vision, that being of a gigantic wheel, something that was going to take people up into the sky and then safely back down, only to do the movement all over again. How high do you think he was when he was thinking of, like, a giant hamster wheel to take people into the sky, like... 
Considering that this is the age with medical cocaine, um, it is very possible that a number of people, when they came up with ideas, were certainly on something at the time. We should do a history of roller coasters because I need to know who did that. Who did this? Oh, God, that would actually be awesome. I would love to do that in amusement parks in general. That would be great. So here's what they did. The first thing that happened is that they used dynamite to break through around three feet of frozen ground. And this whole thing was to create a foundation for the wheel, right? And then during the construction of the wheel in Jackson Park, which was during the winter of 1892 to 1893, they had jets of steam that were used by workers to thaw dirt and then prevent all of the poured concrete from freezing. They would then use piles of timber to drive 32 feet into the ground, on top of which they had a grillage of steel that was then filled with concrete. Essentially everything they could do in order to make it as structurally sound as possible because this thing was massive. We're talking a wheel that rotated on a 71-ton, 45.5-foot, or for anyone in Europe right now, 13.9-meter long axle that was comprised of what was at the time the world's largest hollow forging that was manufactured in Pittsburgh by the Bethlehem Iron Company. This thing weighed 89,000 pounds. Together with a two 16-foot diameter cast iron spiders that weighed 53,000 pounds. What do they mean by cast iron spiders? So like just actual spiders? No, 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 not like cast iron, not like actual spiders. Essentially what it would work is that, um, so you're, you're talking about the axle upon which the entire thing would, would spin. Oh, the thing that hooks And the spiders the... that hold everything right. together. Okay, yeah, sorry. Right? I should yes. have known that. Because if you've ever seen a Ferris wheel, it's not like a um, it's not like the same thing as when you'd see a uh, what would it be the word that I'm looking for? You know that thing in like bingo when or or when they're spinning the wheel and then it drops everything out of it. You're right? assuming I've played bingo, and I love that for you. You never seen like in in movies or TV shows with old people playing it, how it does that. No. Well, they need something structurally sound on the inside to kind of hold the entire thing together, and for it to spin on an axle itself. So, what they did is they 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 created this huge thing and then they doubled down on it and created a miniature wooden replica that resides in Pittsburgh at the uh at the, it was at this one guy's house it was at like Senator John Hines no it was at it was at his history center is where it was at so this thing was big you know how we have um you know how we have these little Ferris wheels nowadays, which if anyone didn't catch that in the first place, how this was Gail Ferris Jr. This is literally the Ferris wheel. They, they didn't, if they didn't somehow catch that. So you know how there are uh, Ferris wheels now that it's like you go into it and it's like two to three people at a time go up into one of these things, maybe even up to like six or eight if it's one of like the uh, the cabin looking ones. I love the cabin looking ones. I hate the open ones. Oh, the open ones? Yeah. Well, check this out. So this thing, this thing that they made, there were 36 passenger cars and each one of these was fitted with 40 revolving chairs and was able to accommodate up to 60 people, giving a total capacity of 2,160 people at any given time. Which is ridiculous when we're talking, like, no Ferris wheel nowadays, at least from what it is that I've seen, is constructed like that. Can they recreate that? I, I, I would think I think that they could be able to, considering why, that why they did this in the they? 1890s. Do you think they recreated it and we just don't know? Maybe they have, and I'm just not really aware of it. But this thing is ridiculous, right? So, 
at its peak of its revolution, right, passengers were going to be over 300 feet high in these big cars. I say cars like these, these carriage things that they were in that were larger than a Pullman train carriage. The Pullmans, if anyone is not aware of this, when you have those, uh, those passenger cars that people would sit in in trains, those like the big ones in America were Pullmans. So they were the ones that passengers would be accommodated in. Not like not like the cramped conditions of airplanes. We're talking about like the full big passenger so cars. So like those really big trains with like the skylight that go to Alaska or through Alaska. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I want to go on one of those. Yes. So this thing was big. Each one of the cars was huge. So each car that he had came complete with its own lunch counter. And it took approximately 20 minutes to make two revolutions. The first involving six stops in order to allow any passengers that were on it to exit and then enter. And then a second nine minute nonstop rotation for which the ticket holder that would go on it would pay 50 cents, which... 50 cents, considering what they were talking about. Quick, That's off the top of your head. That's kind of expensive, wouldn't it be? It might be. Here, are you able to do a thing again here? I know we looked up inflation earlier when talking about the uh, the rates of this. So can you look up the inflation rate of what it is for 50 cents in 1893, what that is today? Because if it's 31 times larger, like or 33 times larger than what it was before, I believe that that means that that would be approximately oh, no, $15. So 50 cents in 1893 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $16.56 today, which is actually cheaper than a Ferris wheel ticket at the fair. That is awesome. So that is, that is awesome. Even if you want to assume that people had less money and you doubled that, paying the equivalent of $30 for a ticket to do that, it was Ooh. something brand new is crazy. The price increase from 1893 to today is 3,211.24%. Sorry, yeah. I just Welcome saw that. Welcome to inflation. I'm not doing great after seeing those numbers. Yeah, economic history is a whole other thing for people. So this was big and it was cheap that so many people could go and afford it. Oh, my cat just jumped up on me. Um, it was cheap. Everyone could pretty much afford this to do. So it was a hugely popular thing. It first opened to the public as the whole centerpiece for the expo at the Midway Plaisance on June 21st, 1893. And it operated right until after the expo ended in October of 1893. So Burnham finally had his Eiffel Tower. And the Ferris wheel would offer not just something for the rich, but specifically everyday people, like the average person was going to be able to get a bird's eye view that was not possible. Like you have to think, for people that were living their regular daily lives. They didn't have planes yet. No, though the Wright brothers were in attendance at this thing, which we covered, um, earlier, which we covered yeah. earlier. This was something brand new. For most people, most people had never been in a skyscraper before. They'd never been in any of this unless they climbed a mountain or went actually somewhere where there was a view they were never up that high to actually view but things. But can you imagine? Okay, like, I'm not saying mountain views are underwhelming. That's not what I'm saying. But city bird's eye views are definitely different than just the top of a tree. Yeah. Or a really big river or the bottom of a waterfall. Yep. And seeing, like, this whole massive city, especially when it was going at night with all the lights lighting everything up, it would have been an insanely wondrous sight for people to see. It was It was crazy. So, like, the funny thing is here, right, when this, this thing was first being tested, the lead engineer tested its brakes, right, and there was this massive growling screech that erupted into the sky as it shook with the turning of its braking mechanisms. And as it began to turn for the first time, there were all these loose nuts and bolts, as well as a few wrenches, that began to fall off of it onto the wheel. Now, you, 
this is something that is it, it sounds pretty bad, but the gist of it is is that it had taken twenty eight thousand pounds of nuts and bolts in order to assemble the wheel, and very obviously some of these were not exactly secured into the wheel. They were just ones that were laying about in the general area. So as this thing is like stu- like stuttering, starting for the first time, the whole thing is vibrating and stuff is just kind of falling off of it. Which is pretty wild to think about here. I would have seen that and been like, oh, no, it's falling apart. I'm not getting that's, on it. That's literally my first thought about it. But no, you're, you're right. The gist is that th- these were things that all the people as they were constructing it, there was stuff left over. I mean, I remember as a kid, something that I used to do, actually. Um, I-, I used to live in this neighborhood in northern Kentucky when it was being constructed, right? So I remember... Every couple months, we would travel a little bit further down, and there'd be more houses that would be springing up because they were building it. So my friends and I used to go down there, and we would go dumpster diving into the dumpsters for materials. We got, like, packs of nails. We got, like, all different kinds of stuff from it. And we used that spare stuff to build our own little forts that were out in the woods behind our house. But... That's what I would think of because you'd go to one of these construction sites and there's just loose stuff laying around everywhere. So you just thought they didn't put it together well. No, I mean, I I, I just I just took the free stuff. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the whole midway, as this thing makes a first turn, it erupts into applause. People love this. And just as Burnham thought, the Ferris wheel was the most popular attraction at the expo. People would come back day after day after day just to ride the wheel again. And in the end, after everything was said and done, approximately 27 million people attended this expo over the course of its six-month run. The entire event cost the city of Chicago $1.5 million, which... We did actually get this one written down because if, it, if you adjust for inflation, this was around, say, 40 to six, like $50 million. For considering what they did here for six months, you could not put on an event that lasted two weeks or like six weeks, let alone six months for that price. That is this size. Because everything costs more because everything's more advanced nowadays. Yeah. Like you're going to need Wi-Fi. You're going to need the electricity. I mean, they had electricity, but how much does electricity cost? How much did the fire festival cost? Like the thing that was a complete failure. That, was that in the U.S.? It, uh, it wasn't it in was. the U.S., right? But it was a bunch of people from the U.S. and other places, and they tried to set up that uh, that f- music festival. How much did they end up spending on it? That It was a complete disaster because it was overhyped and not actually put together at all. I'm genuinely curious about that. Oh, it actually does not say how much they spent to set it up. Like, at least not what I'm finding. But they did sell tickets for a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, like thousands, tens of thousands in some cases, I'm pretty sure. And I know that they spent probably the equivalent of millions, and that was a thing that was a disaster. So what they did here is, it's it's insane. It really is insane. This whole point for the city of Chicago was Such a huge accomplishment. It was an effort that they were doing in order to show the world that they had recovered from the Great Fire, they were ready to start with their new identity and their future as a major player on the world stage. Unfortunately, the last couple days of the fair were shadowed by something that was a little bit of a tragedy. Because although there was a joyous celebration that was planned for the fair's official closing day on October 30th, Essentially, all of the excitement disappeared because news broke out that Mayor Carter Harrison 
was assassinated just two days earlier. Like the guy who had wanted to put this whole thing together. The one together who got the, the fair to the, come to Chicago. The one who did the whole Why thing to get it ready. Why was he assassinated? Well, we don't really know. It's like some weird thing. The, the story of it is how it goes is that on October 28th, 1893, the Chicago Daily News published an extra edition that detailed Harrison's fatal shooting. Quote, the murderer is under arrest, as the report would announce. He gives his name as Eugene Patrick Prendergast. So what this guy did, Prendergast, is that he arrives at the mayor's mansion that previous evening, and he told the maid who answered the door that he had urgent business with Harrison. So the maid ushers him aside, he goes to the hall, and he's waiting there. And roused from a nap, Harrison then comes down to greet his guest, but almost immediately is shot, just outright shot and as a as soon as the like as the maid heard the shots this was then followed by two more and then there was the sound of a heavy fall likely with harrison just falling down the stairs how do you just let someone into the mayor's house come on well i mean no one really thought of anything here at the Back time in the with day, it no here. security because if a person is saying oh i have urgent business with this person it's like okay what if it's a business associate there isn't really the same process of verification that they would have at this yeah, time yeah it's like they can't just send an email or shoot him a text there's really I mean, not it makes sense so the mayor's son william preston harrison he heard the shots from another room and rushed to the scene and his arrival spooked prendergast who then just ran out the door and soon after mayor harrison succumbed to his in his injuries of course this whole thing um really put a bit of a depressing mood on all of it as the newspapers wrote dull and cheerless dawned the last day of the great fair the faint rays of the morning sun, straggling through the banks of the murky clouds, shone upon a deserted city. There was an air of desolation overall. From every flagstaff drooped a banner at half-mask. So there's this book, actually, something called The Devil of the White City, where there's this writer called Eric Larson who states that this entire thing is about the effervescence of life. The whole purpose of it is all of these people coming together in what was like a manic moment. Really, if you wanted to characterize and describe these things, you know how you have someone who is like manic depressant and it's like they're not always depressed. They have these like moments where it's like everything is amazing and wonderful in life, followed by complete and utter misery. You're just going to call me out in the middle of a podcast. Well, listen, you, I'm, I'm just saying you're familiar with it. You know. But no, I think it's like when you go to a concert. Mm -hmm. and, and you go to a concert and it is like in that moment, the biggest, the best thing that's ever happened. And then you leave and you're empty and it's just done. And a few weeks later, you still remember it, but it's not like the concert at the forefront of your mind. You just kind of forget it. It was such an ama amazing, elite, grand moment. So you had all these people came together put together this huge massive fair that just took the world by storm they pour their hearts and their soul into this thing and then it simply disappears like almost entirely from national memory i mean there, there's kind of something sad about that but it's also so crazy and wonderful and amazing about how humans were able to do this that it's, it's just it's just wild to me and i think that we can really agree that Although these figures that we've just spoken about did some absolutely crazy things, it's really, it's really something that when we look at them, they were just humans. Humans who came together 
to do something wonderful. But they didn't know everything that they were doing. They instead, they instead were trying to make something out of nothing, something that had never been done before. They tried to come together and create all of these new ideas that would inspire everyone that came after them. I mean, you got to remember, we, we talked about this. The Wright brothers were there. Henry Ford was there. They were looking at all these technological, societal, and amazing innovations from everyone around the world. And then it just spawns us into the 20th century. H.H. H. Holmes was there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The murderer was there. Uh, he was. He was less inspired was and more so opposite. took as a target. I, I tried to listen things. to his podcast. It was. Yeah. No. Great. That was. That was not the, the podcast wasn't that great. What he did wasn't that great. That's what I mean. The crazy thing is that although this was a moment that burned so brightly and then was gone so quickly, really, as long as it, like many events in history, are remembered and their stories told, they're not truly ever forgotten about. That's one of the things that I love about this podcast. That's one of the things I like, love about making videos, about telling these stories, is that there's all these events with all these details that really no one has ever heard of before, and we get to share them, and it's, it just becomes its own little amazing experience to listen about. Hell, even the simple little innovations <laughs> about going in, like, what was the one, um, like, the, like the whole thing with the safety elevator that we were talking about for, like, oh, it being introduced with the Eiffel Tower. And everything. It's like yeah. these little details that are just like, oh, oh that's cool. So that's how that became a big that. thing. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you to everyone who is here, who has listened to the story, who has been a part of this podcast, who wants to hear even more coming to us in the or from us in the future. We really couldn't do this podcast without you, and we are extremely grateful. I only hope that in the end, years from now, that maybe there will be things, stories that we tell that you suddenly, in a moment at a dinner table somewhere, go like, oh, yeah, oh, hey, did you know that back in 1943, this random thing occurred here? Or even the listeners at some point making history somehow, and then someone else tells their story. Exactly. Later on. Thank but you. We're recording this on Thanksgiving, so. We are. Extra thankful. We are thankful to all of you for being here and supporting this channel, this podcast, everything that goes with us. You are the reason that we are here and able to tell these stories. I hope that you all have a good rest of your day. I hope you learned something, and I hope you in general just were entertained for a while. Goodbye, everyone. We will see you all next time. Bye. And now for the family history, which we always forget about, but make sure, you guys, to go to our website, which is historyofeverythingpodcast.com, and submit your relatives, and if they have any cool stories, even if it's not that cool and you don't think it's that cool, I mean, everybody's story deserves to be told, and we like to tell them, so go submit them. Send us an email. Always find it funny how at the very end I always say goodbye at the end of each podcast, and then I kind of forget, like, oh, wait, 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 wait. We have, we have a family history. We have something else to do at, out of this. So there's, like, always, like, three or four or five minutes left in the podcast than what there actually is when I say goodbye. So today's story comes from a person by the name of Louis Antonio Reyes III. Very important. We've got to add the third on here. I always love it when we have the names like that here because it's, uh, it sounds cool to me. Is it Louis or Louis? Well, I'm going to assume that it's Louis because assuming that uh, like this, like if we have Spanish and the French, then it wouldn't be Louis because it's L-U-I-S. That's Louis. I don't know. Okay. Louis? Louis? If if I'm saying it wrong for the person who sent this in, because Louis I is French, 
Yes. This looks more like Louis. But I would assume that Spanish follows the similar thing, right? Would it not? I might be completely wrong, and I'm just bullshitting right now. I don't know. I'm I'm 98% sure it's wrong because I'll say Lewis then. I'll say Lewis. I okay. had a friend in high school called Lewis and we call, uh, that was his name. That's what he said his name was. Then I'll do it like that. I'll say Lewis. So hello Stucky. My name is Lewis Antonio Reyes the 3rd and today I would like to share the story of a great and wonderful man by the name of Barry Allen Birdie. As of now as I write, he is being taken care of by my mom, dad, sister and I. And at the end of my senior year at high school in 2022, he was diagnosed with leukemia. If you don't know, Gabby may surely know. Wait, hold on. You think I don't know what leukemia is? You may not. <laughs> I may not. Okay. We, we don't know. To make matters worse, this year, three days before my birthday, November 4th, he suffered a fall, causing internal bleeding in the brain, and they're both untreatable, meaning that as of now, he has weeks and maybe a month at best to live. Unfortunately, he and I share no blood bond, only that of a paper, as by law that states that my mother married his grandson when I was merely eight years old, if my memory serves me right. He has always treated me as his own blood, as should every stepfamily should, and if I were not all the wiser, I would have never known the difference. When I meet him, I was all but a little kid, always yapping about something, most in particular, something that always has to do with history. He noticed that I had an undying love of history, and most importantly, my family history. He learned from my mother that my other great-grandfather, Bob Parks, named me the next family historian. So, with my love of history and my becoming the next historian, he told me a few of his stories. This story comes from his time in the Air Force at the peak of the Cold War. So, the year was the late 1960s, and he was based in Florida, as so many stories happened there. Or, so I believe, because he was given the orders to move abroad, and that he is to board an air tanker and refuel a nearby jet. He just, as I have, loved tech and planes, and he asked what type of plane it was that he was going to pilot, and he was given no answer. So, without question, he went and boarded the plane. Now, you as a history lover may already know too well what aircraft this might be. They took flight to intercept the aircraft and refuel this unknown aircraft. The flight itself took no longer than about two to three hours, mainly due to the altitude, to refuel being around 25,000 feet, which of course took some time. They, at some point, reached the altitude and began talking on the radio, mostly about fun, stupid Air Force humor, as they always did, but at some point, they get a call from a nearby plane requesting altitude, speed, wind location, or wind speed, location, and direction to dock and refuel. So the pilot goes to a private channel and guided by the unknown plane, or and goes and guides the unknown plane in. Now, in the Cold War, old war tankers didn't have long tethers that could refuel it. It was close and personal, and most crew can see the other pilots of the refueling aircraft. The plane that came in was that of something otherworldly to my great-grandfather. He told me it was like a spaceship and that the pilots themselves had to wear special gear. It was long and slick, alien-like in design, with thin edges and a strong point to the nose, its color being that of the dark midnight black. Ooh, I know which one this is. I know so which it's one not an one. alien. No, it's not. The pilots of this unknown aircraft were talking on an open channel, so my great-grandfather asked them questions, such as, what was the top speed? Why the special gear? What was the max altitude? Most of his questions would not be answered, or rather, the best that he got was, it's classified. However, there is one thing that he told that answered his questions in the most broadest of, way- of ways. The pilot of this aircraft told him and the crew... Well, if you must know, this puppy can outclimb or outfly anything. Then, once done with the refuel, the pilot told them, you boys may want to sit down, and man was he right. 
The plane shocked the second. This new plane went full throttle, and shortly a loud boom was heard. At some point, he landed back at base and was amazed at what he had seen, but that amazement would soon be covered in mystery, because once landed, men dressed in formal wear with guards came over and requested to speak to the crew at once. He was addressed by these men and told to sign a contract saying that he will not speak of what he saw until the information is made public, and failure to do so would mean that he was going to receive up to five years in jail time or perhaps death, as well as other forms of punishment. And to his amazement, many years later, he learned the name of the aircraft and was allowed to speak of such a rare and beautiful event in his life. That aircraft was none other than the famous and beloved SR-71, which also, if anyone who doesn't recognize it, because it doesn't say in here, the SR-71 Blackbird. I don't know what that is, but it sounds really cool. Look up a picture of it right now on your phone. I highly recommend it. This thing was amazing. Oh, right. No, I have your phone. Yeah, you have my phone. For anyone who doesn't understand this and why this was such a huge deal, when it says that could outclimb anything, they're not talking about planes. They're talking about missiles. Oh, wow. This plane was able to escape from missiles because anything that they potentially would fire at it, this we're talking about something that could serve as a spy plane, right? This is this is something that would be able to penetrate deep into Soviet air like airspace. And looks- there was literally nothing the Soviets could do to catch it. It looks like a sci-fi plane. It, it does, does look not like, look like... Designed for extreme altitudes. This thing was far beyond the reach of anything. Nothing could touch it. Oh, you should do an episode on this. On oh, the yeah, history page, a mini episode. SR-71 Black. It's a really cool thing. Also, for anyone who may have not seen it, if you've ever seen that scene in Helsing Ultimate, and I, for the short version, Helsing Ultimate Abridged, when he specifically requests an SR-71 Blackbird and then just crashes it directly into London... Oh, it's a beautiful little thing. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But that is a cool, that is a cool little story here. Oh my God, I would have loved to see that up close in person. so much for sending that to us. Thank you, Mr. Luis Reyes III. I appreciate you and to everyone else who has sent in your stories. Please, for anyone listening to this, feel free to send in your stories yourself to History of Everything podcast, which actually it would be... um. Go to the website. Yeah, go to the website and it's listed contact, in there. Just go to the contacts tab. I appreciate all of you. I hope you have a good rest of your day. This is actually the ending and the goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye.